Hi there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Thanks for joining me on the first of a two-part, two-episode podcast um, in conversation with Damien Hughes. Uh, Damien's the author of the very brilliant uh, Five Steps to a Winning Mindset, What Sport Can Teach Us About Great Leadership. I'm not going to say too much more because um, it's one of the most uh, fascinating conversations that I've had in a long time, whether on podcast or off. So listen, I hope you enjoy it. Damien, welcome to the Shift Control Podcast. Um, thanks for taking time off on a Thursday night. Oh, no, thanks for having me, Paul. It's a real, it is a real genuine honour to, to speak to you and to, and to record the podcast. Well, um, we had a bit of a chat beforehand. Um, just a, a, There's a lot of stuff we could talk about. Can you just give us an overview, give a bit of um, your background, who you are and what you're doing currently? Yeah, of course, yeah. So um, the easiest way to I often describe it is I do, four, I do four jobs effectively, Paul. So um, my background is in, is in sports psychology. So a long time ago, I qualified as a sports psychologist. Uh, but then my interest was in terms of teams and cultures. So I followed that to its natural progression. So I work as a professor of organisational psychology and change at, at uh, Manchester Met University. What I also do, though, is I run a consultancy where I work right across a whole range of sectors, uh, working with uh, teams and leaders about how do you create high-performing cultures. Uh, now, some of the sectors I do that in are education, I do it in business, public and private sector, and then I, my, my natural background takes me back into the world of elite sport. So I'm currently just started it, um, working on the coaching staff for the Scotland Rugby Union team uh, from this summer. The third job I do is uh, I write as well. So I've done a number of different books very much around those topics of sort of the psychology of change and looking at it from different sectors and how and how the reader can implement them, them themselves in their own lives. So that's very much my background that I do. It's a little bit eclectic, but I find that um, they all complement each other and they allow me to sort of be able to take best practice from lots of different worlds and share them in in the most palatable way. Okay, so the the uh, crossover point for you and I was the book that you published last year, which was the Five Steps to um, a Winning Mindset. Um, yeah. i got to say that um, there's a few books that I read last year and the one that really did stand out and, and uh, genuinely a book that I've referred to a number of my friends and uh, people in business is the five steps. Um, there's a huge crossover oh, okay. there. No, you're, you're very welcome. I'm totally sincere on that too. Damien, the, um, but you talk about the sort of synergies and the crossover. There's a massive crossover um, from sport into business when it comes to creating high-performance teams. Yeah, and that was very much the premise of the book. So um, what happened was my publisher had, uh, had asked me if I had any ideas for a book. Um, and I'd said to them that, I, that I wanted to spend time working with, meeting, observing and, and, and chatting with the world's best sports coaches with the premise of not so much technically what they were teaching, but how they were teaching. So how do you get people to listen? How do you get them to remember under pressure? How do you get them to um, be able to engage and be able to perform in a way that, that is sustainably really effective? So 
I spent three years doing precisely that, going around the world, meeting uh, these coaches from a whole range of different disciplines. And what became obvious to me was that there was five things that they all seemed to have in common. And that's what the steps is, the acronym for the steps is those five things. So what I realised was they were they were ruthless when it came to simplicity, that they didn't overcomplicate it. They were constantly just emphasising the simple points. So I'll give you an example to illustrate it. Um, there's a great example from... There's an old um, coach called Jimmy Murphy, who were, he was Sumat Busby's assistant. And this relates to when I was a kid... Um, because I grew up in a sporting background. My dad was a boxing coach, so I spent a lot of my childhood growing up in sort of boxing gyms. And Jimmy Murphy used to come in. And uh, one day, my dad said to me, why don't you go and chat to him? Go and find out about, like, he'll tell you some stories about growing up at Manchester United. And um, we got talking about great coaching. And he said to me, I'll show you the difference between good and great coaching. And he got a tennis ball and he threw it to me and said, catch it. So when I caught it, he said, how did you find it? I said, it was fine, it was simple. He said, right, how would you get it if I throw two tennis balls at you? Now, I managed to catch them both, but it took, he said, how did you find that? I said, I had to concentrate a bit harder, Jimmy. He said, right, how would you get on if I throw three or four or five? Now, the reality was, by the time he threw five tennis balls, I was struggling to work out which one to catch. And that was his point. He said, great coaches know, what, know how many balls you can catch. Good coaches from all the balls at you and hope you can work out the answer yourself. And it's almost that idea that great coaches don't overcomplicate things, they just make it really simple. So, and yeah, that's a, a really good example. The, you'd mentioned a couple of guys in the book, um, Cotter and, and uh, Barry Swartz, who's written The Paradox of Choice, and you talk about that's right. Yeah. Right now, like, I mean, um, so in business, we I use the example, um, and I, I can't really claim a source to it, but we're allegedly inundated with between 1,500 and 2,000 brand messages every day. And is that what it is? Wow. Yeah, right. it's something really, really crazy, you know. So so it's, it's a, you know, with the complexity of choosing, people just tend to give up or they feel overwhelmed by it, you know. But you, you used a great example from John Wooden, in the book as well, um, coach. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just some other stats that I came on that just complement uh, those brand messages you were talking about. So, in an average, so in an hour, we, we likely to be bombarded on or interrupted about 37 times during that hour by social media that demand our attention. Now, what we know is that if we allow ourselves to be tripped up just one of those 37 times, to give in to the temptation of, I'll see what's on Facebook, I'll see what Twitter's saying. It takes you, on average, about 22 minutes to get back to the task you were doing with the same level of concentration. Yeah. And I often think that in terms of in, in the smart technology is making us dumb in lots of ways. You know, there's a concept called ADT, attention deficit trait, that says that when you just bombard with too much noise, your IQ level drops by between 15 and 20 points until you give yourself time and space to think. So to go back to the John Wooden example, Wooden was the old great basketball coach in the 60s and 70s. And one, um, there was a brilliant example from a, a couple of uh, psychologists called Gallimore and Tharp, when the, like, they wrote to him and said, can we come and see? A bit similar to what I was trying to do, but they were doing it 30 years earlier. Can we see what you do? You're a great coach. Can we see what, you, what great coaching looks like? And they turned up expecting him to be able to be delivering like these Churchillian speeches and 
being able to fire people up and, and give all these great messages. And they were shocked when they realised that it, the average length of the speech that he would give was about 1.4 seconds, that it was all about giving short, simple messages and tailoring it to the people that needed the information. And they came to describe it as a wooden. So whenever you speak to somebody, think of it in how do you deliver a wooden, which is a simple message that is backed up by a quick example that allows people to have a really clear message of this is what you want me to do differently. Yeah, and uh, the research, um, was it 75% of everything he said said was just instruction? It wasn't criticism or praise, it was just instruction? Yeah, that's it. Because, I mean, I think this, if you watch modern day sport these days, and there's this trend, especially, say, like the football, the elite football, and you get these coaches stood on the touchline yelling and sort of procrastinating, you know, like sort of like making a big show of it. And the reality is, they're doing that for show. They're doing that for their own sake. They're not doing it to give, because they're not giving that simple message to their coaches. And there's a great example from one of the rugby coaches that I interviewed, who, who and it was his point that said, if I need to be stood on the touchline shouting instructions out, my bosses should be asking some serious questions about what I've been doing during the week. Yeah. So at that stage, that indicates I haven't done my job properly that they can't make their own decisions if I'm having to stand there and always try and control them like they're playing a computer game. But on, on that, so if you're looking at a, a you know a soccer team, 11 or, or 15 guys on, yeah. a, on a pitch, same as in an office or a sales team, you've got levels, different levels of comprehension, different levels of ability, different levels of authority and leadership. And how do you, you kind of craft the, the, the same simple message for 11 or 15 different people? Well, there's a great technique that was used. Um, so when I was doing the book, I, I met a couple of uh, guys from uh, Stanford University that were doing a similar project to me, but they were doing it out in Hollywood. And what they were looking for is, how do these Hollywood scriptwriters, these people with all these amazing ideas, how do they get them made into a film? And what they said is, it almost doesn't matter how good your idea is if you haven't mastered this technique that they referred to as the bluff. And what the bluff means is, you have to put the bottom line up front in every conversation. So in a world where we have shorter and shorter attention spans, being able to put your bluff and get your message across in that shorter in that short attention span is the key. So what that means is it's not about giving people sort of twee sound bites or speaking in sort of Twitter messages. This is just about being able to sum up what's the one message I want you to walk away from here. And once people understand that bit, you can then follow it up with the... There's a technique that, that, that is used where it's almost like the inverse pyramid. So you give them the headline, you give them the bluff, and then you can give them the detail afterwards. So if you've got a sales team, for example, if you can communicate and think, what do I want everybody to understand? At least the one message everybody. And it might be we need to improve our sales figures. It might be about we need to um, do more follow-up calls or whatever it might be. If that's the one message and then underneath it, you can create in that inverse pyramid, give them the detail after it, but you have to put the bottom line up front. It's the bluff that I'd, that I'd encourage all leaders to understand. And that, that's really the focus of, of simplicity, you know, keeping it really, really simple and short. Yeah, and and 
I hope it doesn't come across as because it's not about patronising people. It's not about uh, trying to speak in headline terms. It's not about that. I understand that we do need the detail that, under, that underpins it, but it's about being able to nail the one point that you want people to walk away and understand. Because, I mean, there's some other stats that John Cotter spoke about. It. I know you referenced him earlier, Paul, but Cotter said that if you're an employee of an average Western organisation, you receive about 2.3 million bits of information and data from the company directly to you every quarter. Now, whether that takes the form of newsletters or team briefs or meetings or notice boards, it doesn't matter. There's about 2.3 million bits of information. Now, what he estimates is that out of all that information that people are receiving, about half a percent, 0.5% of that information is ever centred around one simple, single, coherent, consistent message of this is what we're in business to do. This is our purpose. So... It goes back to what you were saying about the Barry Schwartz thing. If people are getting all these different messages, where do you focus? And for a lot of people, they become almost distracted. It's easily distracted rather than being laser-like in going after the most important thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, as well as as well as that, I think they just give up. They don't they don't become just lazy. Some of them just uh, disengage because it's just too difficult. Yeah, exactly. It's on, and because nobody wants to feel stupid, but if you're getting that much information, you think, where do I even start that? I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, that's where the, the I mean the P part of the acronym is about practicality. So, from the steps acronym, the P bit says about practicality, and this is one of the big things that when I work with leaders, I'm relentless at quoting. Um, there's an old Albert Einstein quote that said. If you can't explain what you're doing to a six-year-old child, you probably don't understand it well enough yourself. <laughs> and that complements back to that simple message that not only does the message have to be clearly understood, you have to be able to communicate it in a way that everybody can receive it. Because when you start using jargon like silos or synergies or even things like strategies, we're not wired to understand what that actually means. And again, that comes back to a lot of people will just freeze in the face of that information and give up. Well, can I just do something here? Just just to get the acronym, out of, not, not out of the way, but get the acronym out in the open. Sure. Because there's, I think we're going to jump from point to point and back and forward here. Yeah, so S is for simplicity, T is for thinking, E is emotions, P is for practicality or practical, and S is for stories, Okay. That's right. Yeah. Um, so let me just go back to the point you made there. Um, you're talking about about making a, a consistent message and making it to making it easy to 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 understand. That that's um, a, there's quite a responsibility on the communicator knowing that, like uh, you know, uh, they have to be aware that that's the case. They have to be aware of the message, but they also have to be aware of a communication style. Yeah, very much. <laughs> Like, I think this is something that, if, if it's a really important message, you should be investing the time in doing it. So um, there's an old um, quote from um, the guy that runs Oracle, Larry Ellison. He's, he, so, so he applies what he says is, is the 60% rule. And he says, you know what, only 60% of your message is ever going to get remembered. So if that's the principle you're working on, you have to keep communicating the same message over and over and over and over again. And it's almost, and, and it comes back to that. So if you're going to communicate the message, 
invest the time in actually making sure it's the right message. Make sure that it's also like I do this role sometimes with some of the coaches I work with, where um, this works more in the, in in the rugby, where they've asked me to stand on the touchline and be able to communicate the message to like the physios and the other support staff and the substitutions. So they'll do it through a headset. Now, I'm not really steeped in, in the, a, a lot of the language of some of these sports. So when they talk about, in rugby league, for example, a 40-20, I struggle to really understand what that means. But actually, that I play that to my advantage. So I say to the coaches, if I'm going to communicate the message and I'm going to be your conduit, you'd better be able to make sure you're communicating effectively with me. Yeah. yeah. So don't get caught up in just talking phrases that only make sense to you. And I can almost challenge them beforehand. And it's almost like, it's a bit of a daft phrase to use, but I say, think like you tweet. So on something like Twitter, you've only got 140 characters. So if you really want to get your message across, it's got to be concise and you've got to think about what are the most important elements of it. So again, I'd encourage them to just invest a, a little bit of time before standing up to actually show that you respect your audience by by having thought about it and invested the time to communicate effectively for them. You you mentioned in the book as well. It's like um, a probably a more uh, less contemporary version than using Twitter. But does your message fit on a T-shirt? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like the old Frankie Says Relax t-shirt from the 80s. Yeah. Uh, it's the t-shirt law that says if you can't get your message across on the front of a t-shirt, it's too long and people will forget it. So this is where, like, when you start scratching beneath the surface, like, I, I offered a few examples in the book where um, things like Bayern Munich, clubs like Bayern Munich, football club, when they, uh, when yeah. they went back and revised it, their, their whole purpose is, and they still refer to it today as more than one nil. Yeah. So it's not just about winning games, it's about winning games in a certain style. It's about representing Munich and the wider area of Bavaria in in a powerful way that says something about their values. You know, and there's lots of examples that you'll find out there that we often call them mission statements or purpose statements, but the essence is they're just a really simple articulation of what you're there to do, what your purpose of your business is. One of the one of the sessions that I would use uh, when I'm training sales teams or working yeah. with sales directors is to talk about um, just uh, the rule number one is make yourself understood because if you fail to be understood, everything else that follows, even if it's the best message in the world, if it's the most uh, uh, persuasive sales argument, if it's the best business development strategy, if nobody can understand it, the game's over. Well, again... I mean, you're absolutely right, Paul. And um, but just to sort of complement that that sort of message that you're delivering, there's a great example um, that I sort of stumbled across it while I was doing the book because I'd previously done a book on Alex Ferguson and the culture that he created at United, where I spent a, a couple of years going going around and interviewing a lot of people that played and served under him and things like that to find out what was it that made him so unique. And one of the key things that kept coming back to me in the interviews was just the clarity of his messages. Yeah. So what Roy Keane's comments that he said, you know, he, he estimated he'd sat in his company 400 times before 400 games, and he said and never once was confused by what he wanted us to do and understand. Yeah. So there's a great example of, like, 
King recounts it when Ferguson once walks into the dressing room before they play Tottenham Hotspur. And King says it in his book. He says, we're all sat there in the room. We're all thinking, we don't need a long speech here. We know what Tottenham are like. They're a really good football team. But if we stick with them after an hour, we'll physically impose ourselves and we'll beat them. And he says, and Ferguson walks in the room and he said he delivered his message in just three or four words. He said he walks in and he went, lads, it's Spurs. And <laughs> walks out. And King said it was perfect because he nailed all of those thoughts that were going on. Now, what was interesting was when I finished the Ferguson book, it was after he'd retired and they appointed David Moyes. And I know he only lasted for 10 months. But you listen to the amount of players that spoke about their big criticism of him was that confusing messages that he gave. So it was Rio Ferdinand recounts an example where he said he sat in his room once where Moyes had asked him to do an analysis. And he said, I came out after 45 minutes and I had no idea what the point of the meeting was. I had no idea. What did he want me to do differently? How did he want me to, to take his messages on board? And, I, and that's often what can kill you as a leader. If you're not clear about it and then you've not got the ability to communicate it, the confusion and dysfunction that, that disseminates into the organisation can be catastrophic. Do you, did you work with Ferguson? Um, I, so I worked at Manchester United um, for a number of years, but I, I never worked directly with him. I, I was a very junior coach when I worked there. Um, but when I did the book about how to think like Alex Ferguson, I was really lucky then that... Um, and I'd interviewed him a couple of times before that book, but when I worked with him, what I found really illuminating was just going and interviewing a lot of players that I'd played a number of years from, but also those that didn't quite make it because they were all prepared to share some quite profound things that he did. Now, the reality was that I, I describe it as profound, but it was also incredibly simple as well. To, and you're, you're, I take it you're, uh, well, I'm saying this probably without wishing to offend, you are a United fan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I grew up in North Manchester, which is a, is a big sort of United stronghold. And uh, as I, I, I said to you, my dad was a boxing coach, um, but he'd also done, um, he was a staunch United fan. He, he grew up, um, he, he went to school, so one of his school friends was Nobby Styles. Okay. So... Um, We'd always like grown up with all the folklore of of the of the Munich, um, uh, the babes, and then uh, the teams that followed it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was, it, it, well, it was a labour of love to get to write it and get to sort of get a peek behind the scenes of how Ferguson had dominated for so long. So, so you you in the book as well, you reference Mourinho. What do what do you think um, are the stark differences between? The styles of Mourinho Moy and Moyes and Ferguson as well—is it—is that too difficult a question to ask? No, not at all. Um, it, I mean, I did a little bit of work back at United last year, so I, I, I went back last year, and it was a—it was a few months into uh, Mourinho taking over, and um, I got to observe a couple of his sessions from a distance, um, and I think what he's brilliant at doing is—I I think. Every, Everybody that speaks about him talks about the way that he can man-manage, that his engagement of players and the way that he gets them to buy into his cause is phenomenal. And I think there's lots of parallels there with Ferguson. I think Ferguson wasn't so much a great training ground coach, but a lot of his coaching took place away from the training ground. 
So I'll give you an example. There's a, I was told a great story about um, one of your countrymen, uh, Robbie Brady. Yeah. And um, Brady had been at United since the age of eight, and he was sort of coming through, and he was being tipped as a potential uh, first-team player. And there's a lovely example once where he, um, he was in the queue at Carrington at the training ground waiting to get his dinner, and uh, Cristiano Ronaldo came out of the um, dressing rooms like looking as pristine as, as as he usually does. And as he came up to stand behind Robbie Brady, Robbie Brady said to him, oh, you can go in front of me if you like. And uh, Ronaldo just said, all right, thanks, and got in front of him, and they both went on to get the dinner. And Robbie Brady describes it, that when he got to the end of the queue, Ferguson was waiting for him. And he said to him, what do you do that for? And Brady said, what do you mean? He said, what do you let him in front of you for? And he said, oh, it's just being polite. And he said, well, he weren't being polite because he was prepared to stand behind in the queue. Why did he do it? Wow. And after a bit of uh, questioning, Brady said, well, it's Cristiano Ronaldo, isn't it? He's the best player in the world. And Ferguson pulled him up and he said, hey, listen, that's not good for me. I need you to believe that you're better than him. Because if he doesn't start with you believing it, how can I have the confidence to put you in the team and replace him? And I just give that as a little anecdote because I think that was part of his of Ferguson's genius, that that's really powerful coaching. It doesn't need to take place on the training field necessarily. He's spotted something that he can address right away. And I think that's where him and Mourinho, for example, have got a lot of overlap. They've got this ability to, to, to speak to the person, not just the footballer. Whereas I don't know Moyes well enough, but I'd argue that some of his management was disappointing. He, he was, I, but I think it stemmed from the fact that he didn't have a clarity of what he wanted people to do. And because he didn't know that, he was thrashing around, uh, trying to solve the problem rather than going in with some clear ideas of, of how he was going to implement a solution. Yeah, and, and, and you know what, just to add to that, it's, it's arguable that Moyes, no matter how long he would have tried, would have taken a lifetime to come up with a strategy that was going to improve what, what was in Manchester United. And I don't mean in terms of that season. I think that, that coming in after Sir Alex was a poison chalice for anybody. But I think, again, one of the things, and I'll, 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 I'll go to this about Mourinho in a minute, but I think one of the things, that, so there was a couple of things that happened there that I think was almost like a demolition of duty at United. So the fact is, it, it, and I've spoken to some people around this, but, but all the reports came out that said, effectively, David Moyes was Alex Ferguson's appointment. He, he decided that Moyes was the appropriate replacement. Now, whilst... Alex Ferguson's view should always be taken into account and, and, and listened to. It shouldn't have just been the only view. And I think the fact is that Moyes should have been put through um, at least some kind of um, interview or something that would have seen that he had to have earned the job. And what I mean by that is there was some screaming questions before he was even appointed. So he... In his 10 years at Everton, he'd never won an away match at Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea or Liverpool. So four of his biggest rivals, he'd never gone away and won. Now, that was over 55 matches. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to sit down and interview somebody, that's one of your first questions. Why? What's your reason behind that? Can you tell us what you're going to do? The second thing I think he did was, I think, and again, I think this is where the club could have helped him. When he came in, 
and decided to get rid of all the backroom staff that had been loyal to Ferguson and bring his own people in. That was almost like you're getting rid of your corporate memory. All the people that are, that could have told you the pitfalls or some of the hazards to avoid weren't there. And I think if he didn't just come in and brought in just one other member of staff with him, somebody that could have almost been a bit of a confidant for himself and given himself at least 12 months to to pick the brains of those people that were there before he started to make any decisions, I think he could have given himself at least a fighting chance of doing something different. But the fact is that he, that he was seen to have been anointed and that always goes against you when people think you've not had to really earn your stripes there. And secondly, it was the fact that he got rid of all the corporate memory that could have helped him avoid some of the pitfalls. So if, if I don't want to turn this into, as much as it's incredibly interesting and fascinating insight into Sir Alex, I, didn't, I don't really want to take it down that road, sure. but I okay, wouldn't mind asking... I wouldn't mind asking you one question um, on that, Damien. Um, yes, sir. I, I would have. A, I'm, a, I'm really, really big into GAA, into football and hurling, and, and I, I, I look at soccer from a long way out. But sure. I, I would look close at Celtic. Um, Jock Stein, now Brendan Rodgers is doing an, an incredible job. Um, there was always the the idea that um, you know the the big, the most successful managers. In soccer, um, Steen, uh, Shankly, Busby, yeah. and Ferguson all came from really, really stark working class backgrounds. What was what, what was the biggest influence on Ferguson that made him stand out? Do you think? Um, I, well, I, yeah, I did ask him this question a long time ago, uh, so I did get one uh, chance to sit down and ask him this, and. He speaks a lot about his background in, in Govan, so just on the outskirts of Glasgow. But he spoke about the, the sort of values that were instilled in him from um, from his parents. His, his, uh, but he also spoke about he was in the Boys' Brigade and uh, some of the seminal figures behind that. Um, he spoke about the kind of values of loyalty, discipline, um, sticking together, were all things like that that, that that really drove him. So there's a lovely story. I heard Gary Neville tell this, that when um, there was an incident back in the, uh, when they won the uh, treble back in 1999, where Roy Keane got arrested for um, some kind of altercation that had taken place in Manchester. And Ferguson was more annoyed at the rest of the squad for leaving Roy Keane on his own, not for Roy Keane getting in trouble. Because he went back to his own values of you don't leave your mates, there's a loyalty. Once you're in, you're all in it together. And I think he picked that up in his own background and I think that kind of tribalism of once you're on my team, there's nothing I won't do for you. People describe it as being almost like seductive to be in, to be in, that, to be in that inner sanctum. But that's really the core of team teamship or, or creating high-performance teams is having a a team there in the first place. Yeah, well, that, I mean, if we get on to talk about that, I mean, I think that I love that topic because one of the things that I, that I challenge a lot of business leaders when they're looking to create cultures is give me your trademark behaviours. And what I mean by that is don't just give me nice phrases like, oh, yeah, we'll be professional or, you know, enthusiasm. I say, describe it to me. In real detail, tell me what are the rules of the game that you're playing by. 
So when you talk about teams, if, so when we talk about team, is it so? Is it that you don't like you leave no man behind? That idea of we are, we're all in this together. We stick together regardless of anything that comes. Because a lot of people will sort of give those principles, but then first sign of a crisis, it's every man for himself. And go so you don't live it. That's not your culture. Because yeah. because when I work with sports teams, one of the big principles I talk to them is I say. I'm not interested about how you respond to success because any anybody can jump on your back when you score a goal or you score a point. Where I assess you is how do you handle failure? How do you handle those moments where the roof falls in? And I want to know how you respond then because that tells me really what your culture is and how strong it's going to be. Because if you if somebody makes a mistake and you've got people that rally around and do their best to protect that individual that tells you a lot more about the real culture that exists than who's seen to celebrate with you when it goes well, because anybody can do that. And that's all about resilience, and that's all about um, individual high performance, and it's all about um, uh, it's all about a whole lot of things that many soccer teams don't seem to have truly found, um, and a lot of businesses haven't found either. That 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 uh, that example you gave about talking about brand values, and um, you know, I do sessions on this as well, where you talk about brand values, and then you ask them to give one recent example where they have actually delivered in that brand value uh, as a case study um, in real life and in real terms, and most of them fail to do that. Well, well I've got. A, I mean, I have to have an issue, and. Um, with even the word value when people talk about it because I say well what is a value and a value is like a nebulous term so people often will go I'm not sure or they'll give you an abstract answer what and I say this to be provocative and and, and I'll say this um, for your listeners on this poll is I'll say if you have a racist value for example that's something that that you've been given from your background your culture your parents your teachers whoever it is and you can keep that well hidden. What I'm interested in is the behaviour. So if you behave in a racist way, well, now I can address it. That's, yeah, that's absolutely... Yeah, there's... Um, so behaviour to me is a value in action. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and, and that's the bit that really counts. So when people say, oh, yeah, we were... Um, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but when people say, oh, yeah, we, uh, we're really passionate. So what does that look like? What does passion look like? How does that manifest itself as a behaviour? Because passion isn't just about making a big noise. Passion might just be, you know, phoning up that customer and making a personal phone call or writing them a letter or going to their house to do something. That's what I'm interested in, not the phrase passion, because that's quite a nebulous term. I think you cover that really well. That's a that's a brilliant way to describe it. You know, um, value in action. Um, I, again, working as as I do in 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 marketing context, where you're trying to recreate customer value propositions, which which really goes back to when you talk about what's your purpose, and in, in the All Blacks call it mana. And um, you know, what is your purpose? And if the purpose isn't clearly defined, which takes you back, and it, it, that's when we weave through every one of your five steps, um, because. That value in action is is missing in so many teams and in businesses and in sales teams and in performers. Yeah, well, well I've just finished. Um, I, I, I finished the book. It comes out next summer. Uh, the publishers have said where I've I spent the last twelve months um, back and forth from Barcelona, looking at their culture, 
there to the football club. And the period that I was ended up drawing, drawn to in the book is uh, that first period when Pep Guardiola was appointed as manager. And one of the things that he was really, really clear about doing was saying to them, these are the rules of the game. These are the three behaviours that if you don't demonstrate them, you won't be here, however talented you are. And uh, the three behaviours are humility, so that willingness to listen and learn from other people. The second one is hard work, so you might be talented, but you have to invest in your talent. And the third one was you put the team first. Now, those values aren't unique to Barcelona. These are what I discovered, but what, what they did really effectively was they then observed them. So there's a lovely story, and I've started the book with it, is um, Guardiola appointed um, a guy called Manuel Estiart, who is um, not nothing to do with football. He's a former water polo player, and he appointed him as his assistant. And the brief that he used to give him was, because he was clear about communicating this to the players, he used to give him a brief that during the game, he said, I don't want you to watch the game, I want you to watch the bench. And he said, in the moments I want you to watch, in particular for our, when we miss a chance, so when we have a chance that just goes wide or the goalkeeper saves it, he said, now I want you to watch who are the players that don't jump up and react. And he said, because what that tells me is they're sulking because they're not in the team. And that what that tells me is they're not putting the team first. They're putting their own individual cause above the team. And there's a famous example of one game where SDR observed it, and it was about it was the same faces all the time. And once he gave Guardiola the list, he just got rid of them. But he was clear all along: if you don't demonstrate these these values in action, you won't be here. And they backed it up. I mean, I find more about this in the book, but I look at the example of when they so their record signing was uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. So they bought him for 70 million euros and they sold him for uh, 45 million euros 10 months later. And when I interviewed some of the characters behind that decision, they all kept coming back to the same point. Culture, culture counts. The behaviours were more important than any individual. However talented they are, if they can't behave in the way that we demand from our culture, they, you know, we're, we're not prepared to compromise on it. And it goes back to in business, there's so much where we can learn from that to be able to say, you know, we can take that principle. And if you were to communicate that, think about how it changes your recruitment process. Think about how it changes your appraisal process. Think about how it changes your customer proposition. And it starts at that kind of that sense of purpose that you described, but then the behaviors that, that underpinned that are underpinned from it. I can't remember who said this, but I think I'm going to, if I ruin this uh, quote, I'll kill myself, but is it called <laughs> Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast? Yeah, so it is the right one. It's, uh, it's Peter Drucker, uh, the, old, the old management guru. And, and it's right that it doesn't that people will respond to what you do, not what you say. Yeah. And, it's, and you'll see this in so many different cultures. So, again, for any of your listeners, if you were sat there thinking, okay, what do I do with that? Well, start with the principle of, you, you know, you get what you tolerate. So if you're seeing kind of certain behaviours go on and you're turning a blind eye to it, well, you'll get what you tolerate. So I did this a couple of years ago. I was working with a, um, some coaches from a team in the Premier League. And I used to say to them, 
go and coach in the canteen. And they'd say, what do you mean? They'd say, well, go to the canteen. And when all the players are queuing up to get their food, go and stand at the end of the queue. And go and watch which players just fill their plate up and don't care about anybody else standing behind them. They don't know if there's any extra food or, uh, or if everybody else is going to fed. They're only interested in their own stomachs. And I said, I'm going into being at that moment because your opportunity to, to emphasise an important message of the culture that you won't tolerate selfishness is there in front of you. But don't just see it as, a, as something that isn't your domain. You get what you tolerate. So if you're clear about the behaviours that you want people to demonstrate, re-emphasise them wherever the opportunity uh, arises. That's really, really, um, yeah, that's, that's, a, a, that's a good point to end on here. And uh, Damien, I'm conscious we're coming up to time. And, and sure. I want to finish this sort of, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get on again here in a second. But um, I want to sort of join some dots here. My only time at Old Trafford was in 1999. Um, right. I, I arrived there through work um, and I, I ended up watching the Barcelona-Manchester uh, United game, which I think ended 3 all. Three yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that was it. That was um, I think it was Zavik made his debut for Barcelona in that game. Yeah, Figo, Figo was playing for Barca, and um, I remember I think it was they were either Man United were two one down maybe or three one down. I'm not sure. And they yeah. they came back, and um, I I'm a, a, partly uh, curious about I'm more curious about Barcelona than I am about Manchester United. But there's sure. a, there's a brilliant book by a guy called Jimmy Burns. Just called Barca. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've read that book. That's fantastic. Yeah, and um, just to actually see them live, it was like a, it's definitely a bucket list, you know. But um, yeah, so listen, I want to join the, the dots to close off on our first sort of session here. Um, th- uh, that was brilliant, Damien. Th- thank you very much for for oh, your no, time. Thank here. you for having me. I've loved it, Paul. And you know, I hope your listeners have uh, have found it useful. But honestly, I'm really grateful for having me on. Thank you. Cheers, man. Thank you very much. 